Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back with my co-host, Nachi Gupta, and we'll be taking you through the September 2018 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, Emergency Department Management of North American Snake Envenomations. Although this isn't something that we encounter too frequently, it does seem like I've been hearing more about these in recent months. I actually flew someone just the other day because the local ED ran out of Crofab after an envenomation in Western PA. Yeah, this is definitely more than just a board's topic, and it's really important to know about these in rare circumstances. In terms of incidents, there are actually about 10,000 ED visits in the U.S. for snake bites each year, and one-third of these involve venomous species. That's a good teaser. So let's start by recognizing this month's team. The two authors, Dr. Sheikh, a medical toxicologist, and Dr. Patrick Leffers, a PharmD and emergency medicine and clinical toxicology fellow. Both are at the University of Florida, Jacksonville, and they reviewed a total of 120 articles from 2006 through 2017, in addition to reviews from both Cochrane and Dare. And don't forget our peer reviewers this month, Dr. Daniel Sessions, a medical toxicologist working at the South Texas Poison Center, and our very own Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Andy Jagoda, who is also Chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. That's quite the team, but let's get back to the snakes. As some background, from 2006 to 2015, there were almost 66,000 reported snake exposures and 31 deaths from snake envenomations in the United States. Of course, this number likely underestimates the true total. And there are two key subfamilies of venomous snakes to be aware of. The crotalinae, or pit vipers, which includes rattlesnakes, copperheads, and water moccasins, and the elapidae, of which you really only need to know about the coral snake. And while those are the only two native snake subfamilies to be acutely aware of, don't forget that exotic snakes, which are shockingly popular pets, they can also cause significant morbidity and mortality. Oh, and one other quick note before we get into the epidemiology. Most of the recommendations this month come from expert opinion, as high-quality RCTs are obviously difficult. In addition, many of the studies were based in other countries where the snakes, the antivenoms, and their availability, and the general healthcare systems are different from those that most of us work in. Unless we have listeners abroad. Do we have listeners abroad? Oh, we definitely do. But we're going to be a bit biased towards U.S. envenomations today. In any case, venomous snake bites occur most frequently in men aged 18 to 49 during warmer months, with provoked bites occurring more frequently in the upper extremities and unprovoked bites in the lower extremities. In one study of Poison Center data from the last decade, nearly half of all victims of snake bites were victims of unknown type snakes. However, of those that were known, copperheads were the most common, while rattlesnakes caused the most fatalities, 19 of 31 in this dedicated data set. In a separate study of snake bites in the early 2000s, 32% of exposures were from venomous snakes, and 59% of these resulted in admission. That's remarkably high. Snakebite severity depends on several key factors, the amount of venom, the composition of the venom, the body size of the bite victim, the victim's clothing, the size of the bite, comorbid conditions, and the timing and quality of medical care the victim receives. To be a bit more specific, first, the amount of venom will depend on the species of snake with variations even occurring within the same species. Secondly, while there's a correlation between rattlesnake size and bite severity, there's much more at play. Some snakes can even vary the amount of venom based on threat risk, with defensive bites having different profiles and bites to strike prey. I found it pretty interesting that an estimated 10 to 25% of pit viper bites are considered dry bites, that is, ones in which no venom is actually released. Right, this is just one reason why all victims shouldn't immediately get antivenom, but we'll get there. 
We definitely will. As we already stated, venom composition varies greatly. Pit vipers produce a predominantly hemotoxic venom. Systemic effects include tachycardia, tachypnea, hypotension, nausea, vomiting, weakness, and diaphoresis. Neurotoxicity is rare and is usually due to interbreeding between species. While rattlesnake bites are associated with higher morbidity and mortality, the more common copperhead bites typically only cause local tissue effects. More serious systemic findings such as coagulopathy and respiratory failure have been reported too. So that's a solid background to get us started. Let's talk about individual snakes. Why don't you start with the Crotalinae family, aka the pit vipers? Sure. The Crotalinae include rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, also known as water moccasins, and copperheads. These make up the vast majority of reports to the poison centers. They can be identified by their heat-sensing pits located behind their nostrils, hence pit vipers. As a general rule, you can also identify the venomous snakes by their triangular or spade-like head, elliptical pupils, and hollow retractable fangs. Wait, let me get this straight. So you want me to walk up to the snake and ask to see if their fangs retract? Yeah, no thanks, buddy. <laughs> of course not. I'm just giving you some of the general principles here. In contrast, non-venomous pit vipers have rounded heads, round pupils, a double row of vertical scales, and they lack fangs. In terms of location, rattlesnakes are found in all states except Hawaii, and cottonmouths and copperheads are distributed mostly throughout the southeastern and southern states, with copperheads also extending further north, even into Massachusetts. Moving on to the Lapidae, there are three species of coral snakes, only two of which you need to know about, Macrurus fulvius fulvius, or the eastern coral snake, and Macrurus tenor, or the Texas coral snake. Of the two, the eastern, or Mercurius fulvius fulvius, produces more potent venom. As you may have guessed by their names, the eastern coral snake is found in the southeastern United States, specifically east of the Mississippi, whereas the Texas coral snake lives west of the Mississippi. Venomous North American coral snakes can be recognized by the red and yellow bands around their bodies, whereas their non-venomous counterparts can be recognized by their characteristic black band between the red and yellow bands. I'm sure you've heard the popular mnemonic for this, red touch yellow kill a fellow, red touch black, venom lack. I have heard that one, and it's really not that bad a mnemonic. Just remember that this is more of a guideline than a rule, as it, it doesn't always hold true. Coral snakes also tend to chew rather than bite thanks to their short, fixed, hollow fangs. Locally, bites can lead to muscle destruction thanks to a certain myotoxin. Systemic signs of infection include nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and dizziness. The venom also contains a neurotoxin, which can lead to diplopia, difficulty swallowing and speaking, and generalized weakness. Complicating matters even further, the onset of these symptoms may be delayed for many hours. Alright, I think that about wraps up background. Let's move on to the meat and potatoes of this article, starting with the differential. For differential this month, we're really focusing on differentiating a venomous snake from a non-venomous one. Oh yeah, and this is where you want me to walk up to the snake and ask it if it can retract its fangs for us, right? <laughs> Very funny. Although the type of snake may be obvious if the patient owns a snake, for most cases you see in the ED, the type of snake won't be clear. Try to get a description of the snake and consider your local geography. Some patients may even bring the snake in with them. Yeah, no thanks there. As for pre-hospital care, it's actually pretty interesting stuff as recommendations have changed many times. You may have heard of the recommendations for incision or excision, use of venom extractor devices, tourniquets, chill methods, and even electroshock therapy. Well, these methods are all out. And not only are they out, they actually worsen outcomes. So definitely don't pursue any of them. Instead, since no treatment has been shown to improve outcome, you should prioritize prompt transport. And while we definitely don't want to encourage ill-advised attempts at capturing the snake, taking pictures at a distance may be helpful in identifying the snake. Oh, and the authors do note, pretty terrifying stuff coming up here, so brace yourself for this. Even if the snake is dead, the bite reflex is still intact. And that's why I work in city hospitals. 
Don't blame you for a second. There's also a bit of controversy here with regards to pressure mobilization, which is definitely something I thought we were supposed to do in the pre-hospital setting. Apparently, in other countries, like Australia, pre-hospital providers frequently employ pressure mobilization, that is, wrapping bandages proximally up a splinted limb to impede lymphatic spread of the toxin. Right, but in Australia, not only are the snakes more venomous, but the hospital transport distances are much longer. So basically, they sacrifice a limb to potentially save a life. In the U.S., with our current indigenous snake population and the relatively short transport distances, this isn't justified at all. So the take-home point here, based on the current literature, guidelines from the American College of Medical Toxicology, other experts, and doctors Sheik and Leffers, they all recommend against pressure mobilization in lieu of prompt patient transport to definitive care. Good to know. All right, so now we have the patient in the emergency department. Let's begin ED care. As always, IVO2 monitor, including end tidal CO2 if you suspect a neurotoxic or exotic snake bite. Of course, avoid using the affected limbs for vitals. If not done already, remove any constrictive clothing or jewelry and mark the leading edge of pain, edema, and erythema, both above and below the bite. If EMS has placed bandages, leave them in place until antivenom and resuscitative equipment is ready. And definitely involve the poison control center or a medical toxicology service early, as they're an amazing resource. It's an easy number to remember. 1-800-222-1222. If you just type poison control center into Google, that number will come up immediately also. Hypotension should be treated with isotonic fluids, and as usual, anaphylaxis should be treated with the usual cocktail of antihistamines and epinephrine at first IM, and then via infusion if refractory. Note that antivenom will not reverse anaphylaxis on its own. When eliciting a history, there are a number of important factors to look out for, including time and location of the bite, description of the snake, tetanus status, comorbid conditions, medications and allergies, any systemic or neurologic symptoms, muscle cramps, perioral tingling or numbness, metallic taste, history of previous snake bites, and any reactions to previous envenomation or antivenom treatment. Moving on to the physical exam, when examining the wound, look specifically for local tissue effects, which occur in over 90% of patients after pit viper envenomations. In such cases, you would expect pain, erythema, swelling, tenderness, and myonecrosis beginning at the wound site and then spreading via the lymphatic system. In addition, specifically with pit viper envenomations, monitor the patient for possible compartment syndrome as the venom can lead to local tissue destruction, increased cell permeability, third spacing of fluids, and bleeding. And remember that while the local compartment may be hypertensive, the patient may also have systemic hypotension. Just to reiterate what I said before, hypotension may indicate severe anaphylaxis and is not necessarily just due to third spacing. Regardless, the treatment is the same, epinephrine. Good point, but let's focus on compartment syndrome for a minute. True compartment syndrome is actually quite rare. It's really subcutaneous hypertension with preservation of otherwise normal compartment pressures that you're most likely to see. Compartment syndrome should therefore only be diagnosed by actual compartment measurements and not just the exam. However, if you're dealing with compartments that can't be measured, like in the fingers, your only choice is to be guided by the exam. Risk factors for compartment syndrome in the setting of the snake bite include envenomations in small children, involvement of the digits, application of ice or cold packs, and delayed or inadequate antivenom administration. In terms of respiratory effects of envenomations, they aren't common. Both bites to the head or neck and neurotoxin-containing venom are potential causes. In the setting of respiratory failure, be prepared with advanced airway measures like nasotracheal intubation or cricothyroidotomy. And remember the antivenom will not reverse respiratory failure. Neurologic effects may be present upon arrival, but may also be delayed up to 12 hours in the case of eastern coral snake bites. It's noteworthy that in one study of almost 400 eastern coral snake exposures, the onset of systemic symptoms occurred on average 5.6 hours after the bite. 
So definitely remember that repeat exams and observation will be tremendously important. The actual neurologic symptoms to look for depend on the snake. Coral snake venom can produce a descending flaccid paralysis characterized by motor weakness, especially of the cranial nerves. Similarly, pit vipers, especially the Mojave rattlesnake, have also been associated with muscular weakness of the cranial nerves and even respiratory insufficiency. Pit viper envenomation can also lead to myokemia, which is repetitive small muscle fasciculations. Unfortunately, this myokemia may not respond to antivenom administration, and myokemia of the chest wall and torso can necessitate intubation in extreme cases. Both myokemia and myonecrosis can also lead to rhabdomyolysis in the case of significant envenomations. Pit viper envenomations can also cause hematologic effects. Fibrinolysis and platelet consumption at the bite site can lead to decreased fibrinogen and thrombocytopenia. In severe cases, this can lead to systemic bleeding and even hemorrhagic shock. Those on anticoagulants and antiplatelet agents are at increased risk. Dermal effects such as edema, ecchymosis, bullet, and bleeding are not uncommon. But up to 50% of coral snake bite victims may have none of these. And to round out this section, just be aware that rare effects such as osteonecrosis, ischemic stroke, massive PE, and septic shock have all been reported. Let's move on to diagnostic studies. Most patients require a CBC, coags, and a fibrinogen concentration. Those with systemic toxicity should also have their electrolytes, CPK, creatinine, glucose, and urine tested. And while the data is somewhat mixed, one study suggests that all patients with pit viper envenomations need their coags checked, not just those with severe symptoms, as in one series, nearly 90% of patients had miscoagulation abnormalities. The clinical consequences of these aren't clearly explained, so the authors don't make a specific recommendation. In terms of imaging, a chest x-ray should be obtained in those with respiratory symptoms, and ultrasound may even have an expanding role here for tracking edema, looking for fluid collections, and assessing deep muscle compartments and vascular flow. I feel like we should get some entry music for every ultrasound reference because it seems to make its way into just about every episode. What would it sound like? You bring this up every month. I'll look into something for a future episode. If any of our listeners have a suggestion, shoot us an email at amplifiedebmedicine.net. In terms of monitoring and observation, this is important. All patients with suspected pit viper envenomations should be observed for 8 to 12 hours with the leading edge marked every 15 to 30 minutes. In addition, serial diagnostic testing may also be needed as such changes will be used to guide treatment. In those with systemic symptoms, lab testing will be required every four to six hours prior to discharge. Before we move on to treatment, let me quickly mention grading. There's no universal grading system. The snake bite severity score, the minimum moderate severe score, and grade one to four score, which consider symptoms, exam findings, and lab abnormalities, have all been studied. None have been validated and none track changes, so authors recommend relying on severity of symptoms and progression of symptoms to guide treatment. The crux of treatment for pit viper envenomations is with supportive care and antivenom. Fab-AV, or Crofab, is the antivenom of choice for pit viper envenomations. This antivenom is made from extracting the fab portion of antivenom antibodies from envenomated sheep and processing them with papain. Since the sheep are injected with the venom from the western diamondback, the eastern diamondback, and the Mojave rattlesnake, as well as the cottonmouth, the FAB-AV is most effective against venom from these snakes. However, it does have cross-reactivity to other immunologically similar venoms. Indications for FAB-AV include a more than minimal local swelling, rapid progression of swelling, swelling crossing a major joint, evidence of hemotoxicity, signs of systemic toxicity, including hemodynamic compromise, neuromuscular toxicity, and late or recurrent new onset coagulopathy. 
Initially, dose Fab AV as a bolus of four to six vials IV. With life-threatening envenomations or those with cardiovascular collapse, double the starting dose to eight to 12 vials. The goal is arresting regression, improvement in coagulation abnormalities, and resolution of systemic symptoms. Although Fab AV will reduce the duration and severity of symptoms on lab abnormalities, it will not reverse tissue necrosis and may not reverse neurologic effects. Once the symptoms have been controlled after the bolus dose or a second bolus dose, maintenance dosing of two vials every six hours for three doses is recommended to prevent recurrence. So to reiterate, four to six vial bolus to start, doubled in severe cases, and then two vials every six hours for 18 hours after that. You got it. And like most, maybe all medicines, there are side effects and contraindications to be aware of. Hypersensitivity reactions and serum sickness to FabAV have been reported as 8 and 13% respectively. Most are mild and can be treated with your standard bundle of steroids, antihistamines, fluids, and epinephrine. Risk factors for developing allergic reactions to FabAV include a known allergy to papaya, papain, chymopapain, pineapple enzyme, bromelain, and previous allergic reaction to FabAV. Although FabAV isn't produced using copperhead venom, it may be effective in severe envenomations. And in one study, FabAV reduced limb disability compared to placebo. Therefore, the authors very reasonably advise that you should use the patient's clinical picture and individual factors rather than the snake species to guide your treatment. Interestingly, compartment syndrome should be treated with the initial 4-6 to six vial dose of antivenom and not necessarily a fasciotomy. Fasciotomies have not been shown to improve outcome and are reserved only for those failing antivenom treatment. The reason for this is that antivenom may reduce tissue pressures, obviating the need for fasciotomy. In addition, fasciotomy wouldn't affect muscle necrosis that is occurring, so fascia removal really doesn't solve anything. And just as antivenom can be used to treat elevated compartment pressures, it can also be used to treat coagulopathy. Blood products should be used for those who are actively bleeding or severely anemic, as venom does not discriminate and will destroy whatever blood it comes across. Recurrent and late-onset coagulopathy after FabAV treatment has also been well-described. Although not exactly clear why, some speculate that it occurs for one of four reasons. One, because the half-life of FabAV is shorter than that of the venom. Two, because the venom is initially stored in the soft tissues and then slowly released over time. Or three, because the venom has a late-onset component. Or lastly, four, there is a delayed dissociation of the venom-antivenom complexes. Regardless of the mechanism, late-onset coagulopathy can be treated with FabAV. Luckily, bleeding associated with coagulopathy and bleeding associated with late-onset coagulopathy are both very rare. Moving on to coral snakes, coral snake bites should be treated with NAXA, or North American Coral Snake Antivenom. This antivenom halts or at least limits the progression of muscle paralysis and shortens the clinical course. Most experts recommend NAXA treatment in the first signs of systemic toxicity and not for all comers. This recommendation is backed by the literature, as in one observational study, those treated with prophylactic NAXA did less favorably as compared to those who only got it after the symptoms started. This is probably because NAXA doesn't reverse neuromuscular weakness and only limits progression. And it's not like you're just sitting by and watching while doing nothing. Focus your initial treatment on wound care, pain control, and then observation for the development of systemic symptoms. The exact length of observation will depend on the snake, but should be somewhere between 8 and 24 hours. And as for the dosing, the initial NAXA dose is 3 to 5 vials IV for both peds and adults, with a repeat dose if the initial symptoms don't improve. Side effects and adverse reactions occur somewhere between 8 and 11% of the time, with dermal reactions being the most common and anaphylactic being the most severe. There is also one last antivenom to be aware of, Coralmin, for coral snake envenomations. Coralmin is a polyclonal antivenom, 
FAB Prime to Coral Snake Antivenom. Developed because the current lot of Naxa is technically expired, although the date has been extended numerous times. It's currently in a phase three trial, so keep your eyes out for that. Other non-antivenom treatments that have been tested include acetylcholinesterase inhibitors and trypsin at the bite site. Both should be considered experimental at this point, though. To wrap up the treatment section, let's talk exotic snakes. You may recall from the intro that these have a higher morbidity and mortality compared to our native snakes in the U.S. You'll have to rely on your local poison control center or toxicologist for advice, and you may even need to turn to the zoo or aquarium for antivenom if it exists at all. Patients with bites from exotic snakes should be monitored, likely in an ICU, for up to 24 hours as toxicity from some venom may have a delayed onset of up to 20 hours. Scary stuff. Hopefully the patient knows which type of exotic snake they own and you don't have to sort through a million Google images to try to get to the bottom of this. Anyway, there are three special populations to discuss this month. First, as always, are the pregnant patients. The authors cite a 1.4% incidence of snake bites in pregnant patients. They note that this is low, but from my perspective, this seems shockingly high. Why would a pregnant person ever get anywhere near a snake? It just seems ill-advised. Yeah, that is kind of ridiculous. But regardless, treatment is the same with antivenom as needed for all the same indications. With fetal demise rates as high as 30%, in addition to maternal monitoring, the fetus should also be monitored. That number may seem high, but keep in mind that that's from studies in other countries with more venomous snakes, so it's likely to be lower in the U.S. But the point remains that antivenom is generally recommended to be given if the mother has indications for treatment, as poor fetal outcome is tied directly to the severity of envenomation in the mother. Continuing right along, the next special population to discuss are pediatric patients. Because dosing is based on the amount of venom delivered and not on patient-specific factors, dosing is the same for peds and adults. How rare. So few meds seem to be the same for peds and adults. The last population to discuss are anticoagulated patients. Patients on antiplatelet or anticoagulants are at increased risk of bleeding after pit viper envenomations, and therefore, they should have their coags checked every two days following the last dose of FabAV. I think we've at least mentioned most of this month's controversies, but it's probably worth quickly reviewing them since they mostly dispel common myths. Good idea. Incision and suction of snake bites is nearly universally not recommended. In the absence of ischemia, fasciotomy for snake bites is not recommended, even with elevated compartment pressures. Instead, treat compartment syndrome with antivenom and save the fasciotomy for true cases of ischemia refractory to antivenom. With the known or suspected coral snake envenomation due to shortages of Naxa, wait until the patient develops symptoms instead of empirically treating all bite victims. Maintenance dosing of FAB-AV continues to be debated. The manufacturer recommends two doses every six hours for three doses, while some experts recommend only maintenance dosing as needed. It's therefore probably safest to punt this to whatever poison control center or toxicologist you speak with. I feel like we're plugging the poison center a lot, but it's such a good free and nice consult to have on your team. A nice consultant? What a rare win for the ED. Moving on to the cutting edge. There's a new crotalidae antivenom called crotalidae immune FAB prime 2, or more simply, Anavip. It should be available in the next few months. The dosing will be 10 vials up front over 60 minutes, followed by an additional 10 vials if the symptoms have been controlled. Four more vials may be given for symptom recurrence. Patients must be observed for a minimum of 18 hours after initial control of the symptoms. This would be a really nice development as Anavip has a longer half-life and therefore should reduce the rates of late coagulopathy and decrease the need for maintenance dosing, follow-up, and repeating coax. And finally, like we mentioned before, injection of trypsin has been tried as a bridge to antivenom, as has carbon monoxide, which may mediate degradation of fibrinogen-dependent coagulation. All right, so let's talk about the disposition next. 
Victims of pit viper envenomations should be monitored for 8 to 12 hours from the time of the bite. They'll need baseline labs and repeat testing every 4 to 6 hours. If there's no progression of the symptoms and repeat testing is normal, then the patient can be discharged. Victims of coral snake bites should be admitted and observed for 12 to 24 hours regardless of symptoms. Victims of rattlesnake envenomations who initially develop hematologic abnormalities and are treated with FAB-AV should have repeat testing done in 2 to 4 days and 5 to 7 days. Wounds should be closely followed to avoid complications and long-term disfigurement and disability. PTOT may be necessary as well. Perfect. Let's round this episode out with a review of the key points and clinical pearls from this month's issue. There are about 10,000 ED visits in the U.S. for snake bites each year, and a third of these involve venomous species. Pit vipers produce a predominantly hemotoxic venom. Both local and systemic effects can occur. Systemic effects include tachycardia, tachypnea, hypotension, nausea, vomiting, weakness, and diaphoresis. In general, venomous snakes have a triangular or spade-like head, elliptical pupils, and hollow retractable fangs. In contrast, non-venomous snakes have a rounded head, round pupils, lack fangs, and can have a double row of vertical scales on their tail. Venomous North American coral snakes often have adjacent red and yellow bands, whereas their non-venomous counterparts usually have a characteristic black band between the red and yellow bands. For pre-hospital care in the United States, the following strategies are not recommended. Incision or excision, use of venom extraction devices, tourniquets, chill methods, and electroshock therapy, and they all can actually worsen outcomes. Pre-hospital providers should focus on rapid transport. Be cognizant of compartment syndrome, but measure compartments when possible as some envenomations present similarly but have only subcutaneous hypertension. Neurologic effects can be delayed up to 12 hours after coral snake envenomations. Symptoms can include a descending paralysis. For diagnostic testing, consider a CBC, coags, fibrinogen level, electrolytes, CPK, creatinine, glucose, and urine studies. All patients with envenomations should be observed for at least 8 hours. Mark the site of the envenomation circumferentially to monitor for changes. Management of patients with snake bites should be treated with supportive care, pain control, and specific antivenom when indicated. FAB-AV or CROFAB is the antivenom of choice for pit viper envenomations. Although FAB-AV will reduce the duration and severity of symptoms and lab abnormalities, it will not reverse tissue necrosis and may not reverse neurologic effects. Be aware of the possibility for hypersensitivity reaction or serum sickness to FAB-AV. Treat with steroids, antihistamines, IV fluids, and epinephrine as needed. Coral snake envenomations can be treated with Naxa, which halts or at least limits the progression of muscle paralysis and shortens the clinical course. Side effects of Naxa include dermal reaction as the most common, with anaphylaxis being the most severe. Patients with bites from exotic snakes should be monitored, likely in the ICU, for up to 24 hours, as toxicity from some venom may have a delayed onset up to 20 hours. You may have to turn to your local zoo for help out with the antivenoms. Management of pregnant patients is the same as non-pregnant patients with regards to snake envenomations. Dosing of antivenom is based on the amount of venom. Dosing is therefore the same regardless of the age of the patient. All patients requiring antivenom or with suspected envenomation should be admitted. Seek consultation with your regional poison center and local toxicologist. So that wraps up the September 2018 episode of Amplify. As always, the address for this month's credit is ebmedicine.net slash e0918. So head over there right away to get your credit. Remember that the you heard throughout the episode corresponds to the answers to the CME questions. And don't forget to grab your free issue of Synthetic Drug Intoxication in Children at ebmedicine.net slash drugs specifically for Amplify listeners. Feel free to share the link with your colleagues or through social media as well. Next month, we're talking sepsis and the ever-frequently changing guidelines, so it's not something you'll want to miss. Talk to you all soon. 